Hey, hi, hello. Welcome to episode 23 of Trail Society. I'm Corinne Malcolm. I'm Keely Henninger. And I'm Hillary Allen. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Free Trail, but we do have some stuff to kind of tease. We've been talking to some um, cool companies over the last couple of weeks, and the ink is still drying on some sponsorship contracts, and we will be telling you more about that in our upcoming episodes. I'm excited to have some sponsorship stuff coming down the pipeline to help us do this um, week, in, week in and week out. Um, but I was just thinking, Hilly, you're in your van. Um, for those of you who are listening to this, not watching it, um, you're training a bunch, getting ready for your next race, but you also just did a 200 mile gravel bike race and you look just surprisingly fresh. So I'm just wondering how you're feeling. <laughs> well, uh, actually it was, it was so much fun. Um, really what muddy. race was it? It was called the Un- Unbound 200. So previously, uh, Dirty Kansa, but they re- re- rebranded it and renamed it. Um, the same, the Lifetime fit, uh, Fitness guys who, who bring on Leadville. Um, yeah, so it was it was awesome. But um, here's a key point. Uh, 10 hours on a bike feels like a leg massage compared to 10 hours running. <laughs> so, I don't agree. <laughs> relatively speaking. So I think, uh, that was my, that's why, uh, but I just, I just had so much fun with like going into a race like that of just no pressure, just going there just to have fun riding my bike, meeting people. I actually met three runners, supposedly all of these runners found me. They're like, you're Hillary. I'm a runner too. I've only ridden 40 miles. Like, how can I do this? I'm like, just keep pedaling. You got it. And, uh, actually all three of those guys actually finished. So it was, uh, it was just a really big community event. And I think that's why I feel, um, so energized and, uh, happy afterwards. More runners should try cycling. Can you, Am I right? Can you, can you talk <laughs> us through the, the aid stations I was running with my friend, Sarah, the other day, and she said, there's no aid stations. And so you have to have people either crew for you, yeah. bring you food, or you have to pack 200 miles worth of food or gas stations. Gas stations what? are a key, yes. a key in some of these races. That I love gas station my mind. <laughs> so, so yeah, Corinne, the, so basically there's, there's several events at, um, at Undown, but the, the two premier events are like the 100, the 200 and the 350. So the 350 actually is all self-supported. They have a route, but the self-supported, they use gas stations. So you're actually, you don't have any checkpoints. Um, maybe they have one checkpoint where a crew can meet them, but all of it is self self-supported. So they have to go into like the little gas stations in, uh, in uh, Kansas. Um, but for me, even in the 200 mile race, we only had two checkpoints. So, and they're about 80 miles apart. So I had to bring enough water and, um, um, enough food, uh, for 80 miles worth of riding, which, um, it took me about 13 and a half hours for this race. So, um, you know, six or seven hours worth of food for myself and water. Um, yeah. So it's actually really good practice for ultra running. I wore my little running pack. Um, I got to do like the cool little swap out. So it's, it's like, it felt a lot like TDS because Corinne, if you remember, um, we had three aid stations, right. in TDS and, you know, you were, you were, um, you know, carrying most of your food with you. Yeah, for the the aid stations are really far apart in TDS yeah. as opposed to some of the other ones. And so you like can only see crew yeah. a couple times. Um, so yeah, you're like, Hey, yeah. bring a bladder and a filter flask and call exactly. me good. And so that's what I did. So then the gravel bike racing, everyone wears kind of the, the backpacks with the bladder and then, um, you know, packing your bike with little snacks. It's a, uh, it's 
It's interesting to eat on a bike because you can't, I can't let go of the handlebars. So <laughs> versus a lot of people would say it's, you know, probably easier to yeah. eat in a bike race for like, in, particularly in this style of a bike race, because real food, because yeah. you can actually digest food because you don't have the jostling effect that you get mm-hmm. from, uh, that you get from running specifically. There's like a different hormonal yeah. release due to that, but it also seemed really, I mean, I was following along. I had other friends racing. Um, I had one of my friends was there kind of mechanicing for the EF boys ah. for, for Alex and for Lachlan. Um, nice. and it seemed like it was really muddy and that there were, I mean, there's always mechanicals in this race. And for those of you who don't know, in, in bike terms, a mechanical is when you have a mechanical failure, it's a flat, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, your derailleur falls off. It's, you know, sometimes it can be horrifying. Um, I had a, a, um, I had a pedal arm, like my whole like crank arm fell off my bike at a, in a cyclocross event. So oh my God. Um, mechanicals are horrible. It sounded like it was epic out there as far as conditions go. It was so epic. Like, so they always talk about, you know, the rain, cause it's like monsoon season in Kansas in early June. And so the roads had flooded. They had to reroute some of the course for the 200 and the XL people. So, because there are river crossings that they took out the bridge and like, we couldn't just go through them. So um, but then it poured on race day. And so it was notoriously muddy. So I did use my hiking skills. I just like, and my weight training skills, I like threw my bike on my back and I had to like hike for probably a mile in like peanut butter mud. Um, I crashed in the mud and I actually did break my derailleur hanger, but I, I brought a spare. So I had to change it mid race. So very <laughs> proud of myself for that. Um, <laughs> But there was, it was epic. I was seeing people's chain brakes in, in front of me, um, bikes just not working anymore. I had to dunk my bike in a river. Um, pretty, pretty standard, I think. <laughs> pretty standard uh, bike racing, gravel racing, <laughs> the mud, the mud looked particularly epic this year, which is great. Um, that's so cool. I, it looks like such a fun event and I do think they just do a phenomenal job putting it putting it on and people cover that distance crazy, crazy fast as well. It's super. Oh my gosh. I know they had a lot of Olympians and, you know, true to France riders. Um, there's a quite a field of, um, people who came over from Europe to compete in it too. So it was just an incredibly Mm -hmm. deep, um, yeah. A European, a European won the men's race. Um, Mm -hmm. an Argentinian Mm -hmm. woman won the women's race. She, she, her partner is American. She's trained over here a lot. Sophia. Um, it was just really, it was cool to see. I'm I'm jelly. I'm ready for race season. You guys have to come. (laughs) Do we think gravel racing is going to get picked up in Europe soon? They're trying. And there's a bunch of like disconnect though, between akin to trail and ultra running. Mm -hmm. There's a disconnect as to who owns what and what's (laughs) important and like what, like, you know, there's, there's a big international governing body for cycling and it it encompasses most cycling disciplines, including downhill and enduro and like cross-country mountain biking and BMX and road riding and cycle, like all the things It covers all of it. And gravel was kind of this like stepchild sport in which it wasn't owned or wasn't under the international cycling union. And so now there's like this big battle as far as like, they're trying to make it official and there seems Mm -hmm. to be a lot of pushback in the community who don't really want that, who kind of like what they're doing and like their own thing. So I think that that's going to be maybe the difference there as far as like, if it becomes like, if there's a world series that's, that's governed by the international cycling union, that could be a whole, a whole thing. So mm-hmm. look at us bike news one oh one. people are like, what podcast am I listening to? Okay. <laughs> we'll get back to running, but we wanted to catch up with Hilly on that. Um, <laughs> not a ton of racing to talk about. So we'll start with the news. Um, and I signed up for the women's newsletter from Sportswire, which has just been great. Like I'm like being like cued into things that I haven't seen or I've missed um, elsewhere. 
And, um, between that and seeing some posts go up on different runners social over the last couple of weeks, um, there's kind of, there's a bunch of brands. We actually had a question put into us about this too, about women's specific footwear and that being this new thing, Lululemon launched, launched footwear and it was women's specific footwear. Puma is launching women's specific footwear. Under Armour apparently is also they've publicly announced that they are launching women's specific shoes. Um, and so while I, I just find this really interesting because shoes to me are kind of genderless. And then like, I know within the Adidas Terex like household, we also have like, you know, like technically there's a women's version of a shoe and a men's version of a shoe. It's what like the footbed is built on. Um, or like shoes have different volumes. Like Solomon doesn't have gendered shoes, generally speaking, but they have like with volumes that are available. So you could go wider or narrower, same with Hoka. So I'm just kind of curious what you guys think about this. Like, is this, is this necessary? Is it, do shoes have to be gendered? Is this good? Is this bad? I'm just super curious about this. Cause I'd never thought of shoes as a gendered, a gendered piece of gear because there were with options, there were volume options, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I actually studied this, um, when I worked as a scientist at Nike. And so we actually found that when you grade something like a footbed, you don't actually grade the like PSI of the airbag similar to the foot like length or width. And so there actually are discrepancies in how like someone can, can deflect a certain shoe based off their weight because like, they're not grading it similar for men and women. And so there was actually like a woman was running in a men's shoe and not able to deflect it as much. They weren't getting as much energy return. So there actually are some nuances just in shoe construction that would be beneficial to women based off of like how women land in their gait, as well as like women's weight versus male weight. Um, so there are some nuances you could change. Um, and then obviously like just the industry in general used to just have one last and now there are at least women's last and men's last. So there are like technically women's shoes, but I think you could be even more nuanced and really play with like that airbag PSI or the foam density so that women can actually, you know, compress the shoe and receive the benefits from the shoe similar to what a 70 kg male does, which is what they normally test that on with like the material testing in the labs. And so, yeah. I mean, I think there is room for this in the space. So it's kind of exciting when I see companies actually, actually doing it. Do you think That's it matters awesome. for, for like the gender spectrum that we like operate in there yep. too? Like the <laughs> whole, like, you know, do, do this clothing need to be gendered? Does, do shoes need to be gendered? Is there, as opposed to like, I don't know, like there, there are light men, right? Like there, right. there are, there are petite men, there are light men too. So it's like, does it need to be gendered versus like understand like, so skis, for example, Nordic skis are not right. gendered, but they're flexed. Mm-hmm. They're flexed based on weight. So there, mm-hmm. there are lengths and then there are flexes in every single length, which is obviously yep. expensive. Um, and shoes like that would drive shoe price up for sure. But to me, that's like, that's how they operate. Yep. Right. Is it's a flex combined with a length for each individual skier as opposed to gender. Yeah. And I think that'd be a really interesting way to market shoes because that is what we've been able to prove time and time again, is that weight is what is one of those biggest driving factors of how someone is receiving energy from the shoe. And so, yeah, you, you could tune it to a weight. And so a shoe could fit 50 kg woman and a 50 kg male. Yeah, Um, you can, and you can do a range, like generally speaking mm -hmm. in skis, it's, it's, it's not, it's not a huge, it's not a super wide range, but it's not a narrow range either. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it wouldn't be a, like, Oh, I have to be under such, such and such weight to, to wear this shoe type of thing. So mm-hmm. it's, it's I, a curious proposition. Yeah. I do have just a funny tidbit to add to the skiing part that I actually just bought these, these French skis and, uh, the din setting was like expert 
literally they're labeled expert, intermediate, and woman. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Now, so, was, so, it's so based are, on weight. Bindings. It's based on, yeah. It is yeah. And so these are bindings for alpine skis, not Nordic <laughs> but, skis, Nordic ski flex. But so I specifically bought bindings this year by Plume, which is a French company that like are made for lighter skiers, which are geared towards women predominantly. So that the dent, so that you're, so that you will eject out of your binding and not tear your ACL is the yeah. idea. Yeah. Mm, interesting. But it's a funny, that's a, that's a very Euro yeah. to English yeah. translation there. <laughs> you're either an expert <laughs> or you're a woman. <laughs> or a woman. <laughs> I know I looked at it and I was just like, what? Yeah, but it's exactly, it's, it's, it's on, it's on kilos, but. Um, yeah. And anyways. then uh, another thing, Corinne, that we, we were talking about the other day is, is around pregnancy, right? And we know that women's feet change during pregnancy. Mm. A lot of edema happens during pregnancy with all of the differences in water retention that happens. Um, arches collapse. We've all seen this, but after pregnancy, sometimes your feet can go back to normal and sometimes they can't. And so, hmm. you know, it'd be kind of cool if a shoe company started doing like a buyback program or a, a way to get women different shoes during their, their pregnancy journey, because you might've just bought a new pair of shoes and then, you know, you're six or eight weeks into your pregnancy and your feet don't fit anymore. Um, and so we just found that Allison Felix's company actually does this which is super, super exciting. They'll send you a free pair after when you're pregnant, if your feet don't fit into your current pair, which is pretty cool. And I just think it's kind of shocking. I did a, not an extensive Google search, but I did a relatively good Google search. Couldn't find another mainstream athletic shoe company that does this same kind of maternity return for their footwear. So other brands, you got to get on board with this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Bodies, bodies change. There, there are like, there are companies that work with like children, for example, because mm -hmm. kids grow to shoes so fast where they're like a yep. subscription model, which we talked about the other day and another, another, another time, another talk, um, which I think is really cool. So, um, other news was Gatorade dropping the spawn, their sponsorship of the NHL to focus on college sports and women's sports. And I was just like, I think PepsiCo also, they backed out of the Super Bowl halftime show for the NFL um, and that money's being redirected to a couple places. Um, they're not completely, haven't been completely transparent with it yet, but Gatorade dropping the NHL was like, that's huge. That blew my mind. Yeah. I love that you put this in here. I hadn't heard that. Mm -hmm. And so digging into who they said they would allocate some money to one was a, at a prep school for men and female athletes, um, where they actually like advocate for increasing financial literacy, literacy and improving mental health before athletes go to college. So it's a really cool prep school to get people ready for school. And then the second thing they were funding, um, was angel city football club, which is actually a really new, um, national women's soccer league team that was founded in 2020. Um, and they're supported by like Mia Hamm, Nellie Portman, Serena Williams, a total like slew of badass women. It's like a women's women's um, owned first yeah. of all women's owned women's soccer team, which is so cool. So cool. And one of their like biggest ethos is to send a strong message to young girls in the community and beyond to empower them to start sports. So, uh, kudos to, to Gatorade for that. Yeah. And then the last piece of news that I found that I just like, it came up on my Twitter feed. Um, I get a bunch of journalism stuff that comes through due to just due to people that I follow. And there was a big expose, um, because it's a 50, 50th, 50th anniversary for title nine. Um, and so there's this big title nine expose that basically was like, Hey, is title nine? Like, we're not really holding, like, we're not really doing what we're supposed to be doing. Right. And it was this huge, long Twitter thread and article on USA today, which I do not have a subscription to, so I can't have it, the whole article, um, basically where schools are skirting 
the intent of Title IX by doing things like inflating women's rosters to make it look more balanced. Um, I tweeted back at the author and I was like, actually, like this was common knowledge when I went to school. Is this not common knowledge? Like, I'm super confused here. Like we, the MSU ski team, um, they would have to cut the men's roster down to like seven skiers every year. So there'd be a bunch of freshmen come in that would come in. And by the time that like official practice started in the fall, she would have to have like cut the men's team down. And basically any woman who wanted to ski for MSU could be on the ski team. And you were on the roster independent. If you ever came to practice independent, if you ever raced a collegiate meet, like you were on the roster. And so they did that with the ski team. They did that with the track and field team and the cross country team all to try to balance the men's football program, basically, because MSU was like small division one. And so the football team was really, really important. Um, and so this to me was college knowledge, common knowledge, but it seems to like be this huge, like country, like, I mean, nationwide issue within, within the college program. And then Keely, what did you, you pulled some, pulled some <laughs> stats together. And I just thought it was really fascinating. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, I think like to you, it was common knowledge to me it was not common knowledge, but I think what was shocking about this report is they found that it was over a hundred public schools that were doing this roster manipulation. Um, and one of the biggest sports that they could do this manipulation through was track and field, because you can actually count an athlete for all three sports. You can count them for indoor track, outdoor track and cross country. And most teams were counting every single female three times, but they were only counting the males once so that they were really inflating the women's cross country team and deflating the males. And then one thing I found that completely blew my mind is that schools are allowed to count male practice players as female participants. <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, someone's getting fined by the NCAA. <laughs> this is epic. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we also, so, we, we had a women's golf program, but not a men's golf program while we had both men's and women's tennis. So there's all these different ways where schools will intentionally like manipulate rosters and manipulate teams. Um, in order to be NCAA compliant under title nine, which is not the intent of title nine whatsoever. So, um, it's baffling. We'll link this, we'll, we'll link the article in the show notes if you can get access to it. Um, but it's really, it's, it, they did a bunch of, um, analytics on it, which I think would be super cool. What do you um, think Kren is a, or Kren or Hillary, what do you think is a good like solution to this problem? Because football in general is a larger team than, huge than team. some other sports. And so I guess what is the right solution here? Because there's always going to be a little bit of a skew, at least if a school is primarily driven by their football team. Yeah. And so I guess like, I don't know what the solution is, but this sounds a little bit silly. Yeah. Like, it's not like, I mean, so I guess there's other ways, right. It's there's generally not a men's volleyball program where there's a women's volleyball program. There's generally, you know, gender equal basketball programs. So I don't know if it's like, you know, including just other women's sports in order to balance it, as opposed to artificially inflating rosters. Um, I mean, I mean, I guess intentionally inflate rosters. I'm all for that. Right. Just have right. more women on teams. That's <laughs> right. great. But I don't, that's not what the intent is here. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure I was counted even after I wasn't in school too. I left in <laughs> 2010 to pursue biathlon full-time and I'm pretty sure I stayed on that NCAA roster for cross-country running and for cross-country <laughs> skiing. So, right. Like if they were, if they were recruiting more women, cause they wanted to bolster their roster and make their roster better, 
then, then I'm all for, for that. But if they're just putting women on the roster because they're injured or they're not even on the team just to get numbers high, that seems a little silly. Yeah. I think our cross country ski team, she always framed it not as the, like, I mean, I think she was kind of, she was Norwegian. So she was very blunt and straightforward with us. I think she just straight up told us that we like had to have a big team for title nine, but she said the, the outcome of that was that not, you know, it wasn't cutthroat. There weren't nine girls racing for seven traveling spots. Mm-hmm. We had 30 women, you know, maybe let's say that 15 or 20 of us were training together regularly. So it made it less cutthroat in the sense that like, it wasn't like, oh, you're the one person not making the traveling squad. And so we had a really good team dynamic the whole time I was there. And I wonder if, and and she, like, it seemed like she like thought that was a very genuine thing to do. So it's like, I don't know. I just, I'm very curious as to like, what's going to happen because clearly teams are being audited now and they're going to be fined by the NCAA for doing this. And so I'm not sure what the repercussions are going to be there. Mm. Give us all your answers. Tell us, help us, help us group think this one. <laughs> um, let's cover Zagama results because they're super exciting. We're going to shout out some upcoming races that we'll be covering in the coming weeks. And then we're going to dive into some fun, some fun Q and a style questions today. So who wants to, who wants to, be really excited about Zagama. I will. Okay. <laughs> oh man. Uh, did anyone watch it? I was watching it. And before we get into the awesome results, I do want to say that like 10 minutes of like live feed on Killian. I know Killian's awesome, but like I was a bit disappointed with the lack of women's coverage on this race. But anyways, Killian, uh, he had his 10th win and a new course record, which is just insane. So 336. Um, and this is Davide, right? He's the Italian. Yeah, I um, missed this, an E in there. Yeah, Davide um, Man, Maganini. Uh, he's the the French, uh, sorry, the, the Italian um, ski mountaineer, um, schemo guy. He's super talented as well. So he's only a few minutes behind, 339. Um, that was not under the course record, but it was still a very fast time. Um, and then Manuel Marias of Spain, he was third in 345. So overall, a really tight men's race, um, just incredibly deep. Um, and I'm going to, I can't pronounce her name. Corinne, help me. Do you know how to say her name? Mm -hmm. I listened to the interview with her with Dylan. I can't even say it. I say, I can't. She won Zegama, um, 20 minutes under the previous course record in four hours and 16 minutes. Uh, and then second was Mad Mathis, uh, 426. And third went to um, the young rising star, Subultra World, Sarah Alonso of Spain. So Sarah, if you haven't followed her, she's on the Solomon team. Um, she's only 30 seconds behind Maud. Um, she closed so hard. She did. She <laughs> so talented. And it's just like all three of them were under the previous course record. Um, and then if you haven't yet, like give Dylan's free trail interview a listen Mm -hmm. with Ninke, because like she started running in 2020 because she was bored during the pandemic and she's a PhD candidate in geophysics. Like this woman is the sky's the limit. And I'm just like, I can't wait to see the rest of her running career play out. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. To to be that far ahead of Mod too. Mod's been on a terror this season is pretty mm-hmm. freaking special. Yeah. Yeah. Tear for seasons. Like Mod is <laughs> Maude, in the sub ultra distance. Mm-hmm. Mod's yeah. been almost untouchable in the Golden Trail series in particular. To, so to have someone, to have a couple someone's like rubbing elbows, rubbing shoulders with Mod, mm-hmm. it's like that's what makes racing exciting. It's not exciting when Jim Walmsley wins everything by an hour. <laughs> 
Okay. It's really (laughs) exciting when you have a bunch of people that are rubbing elbows and shoulders and like, you don't know who's going to win. Like that's why racing is exciting. So Mm -hmm. praise be the greats, but so exciting to see like this kind of stuff happen. Mm -hmm. That's my spiel. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Yeah. And then I guess one, one thing that's been, been gaining popularity thanks to a startup group called, um, women who FKT, um, are FKTs. There was a weekend last weekend where they, their whole goal was to just have as many women as possible set FKTs around the country. And so that was really, really special. And I got to be a part of one of my friend Danielle's who's been on the podcast, um, FKTs that was here in kind of near Portland, Oregon. She did the Wilson river trail out and back, which was about 44 miles or so. And she was really excited to do it just to become like another, like figure for women to know that they can go out and do these FKTs. Um, and so that was kind of the goal for that whole weekend was to just elevate females doing FKTs so that other females will go out and try them. And a lot of them are setting first ever, like there are routes that have been established that only have a male FKT on it. And so they're establishing first ever women FKTs on men. I mean, some of these routes have, are already well-established, but that's kind of the aim too of women who FKT as well, which I think is so cool. Like there's, there, there are Excel docs now with all this route information for a region, be it Vermont or be it Washington. I know in particular Washington, Oregon, there's like, there's at least two different Excel docs going around in which it's, they've identified, you know, short, medium, and long, and maybe extra long FKTs that do not have established women's FKTs on them yet. So that's kind of the the summer mission. And it's really exciting. Hmm. And two of those are two, two really cool records that I pulled out of kind of what's been going on over the last couple of weeks was um, Katie Brown set a new self-supported FKT on the Arizona trail, um, which is 880 miles long and includes a crossing of the Grand Canyon. Um, so that's insane and amazing. And she did it in 17 days, 19 hours and 52 minutes. And beyond that, she's, she works as a nurse in Salt Lake city, like just very, very cool to see her crush the self-supported FKT. And then, um, over 50 miles a day. That's bonkers in like heat. Like it's, it's a lot. And then, um, Alyssa Amos Clark, who, I don't know if you've, if you guys have heard of her, she's racing TDS this year and I'm kind of scared that she's just going to annihilate me. She's super, super strong, lives down in Southern California. Um, she was one of the, like one of the earlier women to do like the men, like how many marathons in a row thing. She set one, she established one of the early, uh, Guinness world records for that. in like, I think it was like 60, 60 marathons in a row or something. Um, she set a self-supported FKT where she started at this this shop, um, big willies and ran from the store of Whitney and back. And it, the route was like 33 or 34 miles with, uh, close to 11,000 feet of climbing. Cause you submit Whitney and then you tack the top and run back to town. Um, and she did that in 11 hours, 42 or 24 minutes and 47 seconds. Um, and she, she's established some pretty cool routes and is a person to kind of, I, I think, look out for in particularly like in the creative running space. She's I mean, she slays in mountain races and then, you know, she's crushing in the mountains. So, and supposedly she might be moving to Washington in the coming years. And I'm really excited to have her, um, up here because uber, uber talented. <laughs> and then there'll be more racing coming up. We've got broken arrow on tap, uh, kettle moraine on tap, Western States on tap, mm-hmm. Lavaredo, bighorn 100, um, a bunch of UTMB series races, including Mozart 100 and the trail Andorra 100 and the affiliated race with those. So there's going to be a lot of exciting stuff coming down the pipeline. It's officially 
race season things are kicking off, including, um, the next golden trail series race, which is the Mont Blanc marathon and the associated Mont Blanc 90 K are also just around the corner. So, um, things are heating up. Summer racing is upon us. I cannot wait. <laughs> Same here. Mm-hmm. It just needs to start being summer in Portland. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Same. It's like the 14th, 14th false spring in Seattle. It's like already and raining. Um, okay. I know we're on the East side right now and it's definitely overcast and kind of drizzling. So no sun to be had. So we were trying to fill a gap a little bit in our recording schedule, just being up front with you guys. Um, because we were doing this long women's health series and we decided to move it to July to keep it all together. And it's going to cover pregnancy, pregnancy in and around contracts and contract negotiation, um, pelvic floor health, menopause. Um, we're really excited about it. We've got some interviews lined up. We already recorded one of the interviews this past week, all that's going to start in July post-Western States. And so to kind of fill our gap between now and our Western States recap stuff, we wanted to do a try new format. And that's kind of this ask us anything format that we uh, put out the call on social media, on Instagram. Thank you, Instagram followers. Um, And you guys came back. You guys delivered a lot of questions, so much so that we are definitely not going to cover all of them today. Um, But we kind of split them into two categories, kind of, you know, big meteor meat and potato style ones, and then some shorties that we'll do rapid fire at the end here. Um, But then there are a bunch of questions too, that we were really intrigued by and are questions that we want to spend more time on and we'll probably dedicate part of a show to. So stay tuned for that stuff coming down the road. Um, but yeah, let's get into it. Keely, you want to kick us off? So the first category we're going to touch on is navigating the running community and friendships. I feel like we got a lot of questions around this, mm-hmm. um, primarily around how do you join new running groups and how do you get over the feeling of being left out or feeling excluded? Um, and then how would you balance running friends versus other friends? So either of you have insight into that? Yeah. New places is scary. Yeah. That's what I'm going to say. You, she should start it off, Corinne, because you're just moved. So yeah. And actually one of the ways, one of the questions that came in was phrased in the like, well, not for like, not for pro runners for like normal people. And I'm like, oh, we're all <laughs> weird, normal people. Like it's not easier as a pro runner to, to make friends, actually, I think it's harder to convince people to run with me because they think I'm going to run really fast and I don't run very fast. So Mm -hmm. jokes on them. Um, moving is scary. Breaking into a trail community can be scary. Things can feel clicky. Um, but I think it's like, you got to put yourself out there and that's harder as we get older, right? Like I joke that it's so hard to make friends as an adult that I like, whenever I see like a person running around the same time as me, I want to be like, Oh, like, can I get your number? Like, I'm not being weird, but like, you want to run sometime? Um, so I do think it's really hard, but I do encourage athletes when they're moving or when they're going to be in a new place to, to reach out to, you know, it's kind of like cold calling people, um, people maybe that you've been following on Instagram or showing up to group runs, um, run out of your local running store. You'll, you'll find someone that you click with, that you jive with, um, look for local workout groups, like local track, like adult track programs. Um, when I moved to San Francisco, I joined a bunch of the, like the West Valley running workouts. Um, I got my butt handed to me on the track, but I got to meet a bunch of people. I went to this San Francisco running company runs and I got to meet a bunch of people and kind of slowly find my rhythm and my groove. Um, but the trail community, I feel like is so connected now that that's becoming a little bit easier to show up and maybe already know a person or one of your friends knows a person. So I think, but, but it's still, it's still scary to put yourself out there is kind of the big thing I'll say on that front. Yeah. You covered everything that I was going to say. Uh, I mean, I've just been trying 
find anything lately is uh, getting on the track to work on leg speed. And I'll just like randomly, you know, there'll be people there from different groups. And I'm just like, Hey, what's your workout today? Can I run with you? <laughs> and, uh, it's a good, it's a good way to just meet new people. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I've, I'm going to be frank. I think it's really hard to meet running friends. I mean, I think you guys agree with me, but I don't think it's necessarily for me, it's been as easy of just going to a running group. Um, like when I, when I lived in state college, it was a very small niche community. So there was one trail running group. And so it was really easy to get enveloped into that one, because if you went to one race, you met those people. And then those were the only people around that ran trails. So it was like, you got to hang out with them. <laughs> and it was kind of the same when I moved to Boulder outside of college. And Boulder was also a really small niche group at that time too. And so as soon as you meet one trail runner, they're all intertwined in the same exact trail running group. Um, but actually like in Portland and, and as I imagine in bigger cities, it's very sprawling and there are hundreds of different trail running groups and little groups of friends. And so it's actually kind of hard to find like your your group to hang out with. And I found that it took me a really long time and it, it just took consistency of showing up to whether it be races or race preview runs. Those tend to draw a lot of people um, to just meet a lot of different people. And then you continually like run into the same person or people again and again, and then you can slowly start building your own little group out of those. But but I don't think it's like super, super easy because there's so many trail groups, so many road groups that it's hard to choose which one to go to. And then sometimes you go to some that are pretty small and you feel like, okay, I am like the last one out because everyone here knows each other already. And so I feel a little awkward and yeah, I'd yeah. say just, just keep trying, but maybe find the groups that are more targeting like race previews or, or race groups. Cause those tend to draw a lot more people. And I find the bigger groups are easier to, to meet people and not feel as left out in. Yeah. Like I think my, my thing about like going to SFRC was not that I was going to be friends with everyone there, but I was like the likelihood at a big group run like that, where like 60 people are showing up that I might make a friend got a little bit higher. Right. Like, as opposed to going to like a smaller, a smaller group run or a more niche group run. When I lived in Vancouver, I would go to, um, like I wasn't running Squamish 50, but I go to the Squamish orient, like orientation runs that Gary Robbins was putting on. Um, the Neenacker, I'd go to those group runs because they run these like, you know, race preview training runs. Like they're great. Like I totally agree. There a bunch of people are going to come out. You might not be running the race, but it just, it takes meeting a person. I think it takes, it takes connecting with a single person for you to slowly find your groove that like, that's kind of my general, my general go-to I feel like, but what about the question then about like balancing friendships versus like running friendships? right? Like having that balance between like making time for friends or significant others versus people that you train with and how, like, how do you balance or juggle those things? Have any of us done it successfully? No, <laughs> yeah. I'm really bad at that. And I mean, uh, one of the things that helped that like showed me that I need to be better at it was like when I, when, when I first got injured, like a while ago, um, you know, I just felt like a lot of my friends, because I couldn't run with them that like I was losing out on, um, on their friendships. And so it was just being able to, you know, you can still have running friends who you train with and who are training partners, but you can still have deeper friendships outside of that. So it's kind of like leaning into other activities that you like to do together, um, outside of that. And some friends are just training partners and that's fine too. Um, so yeah, that's just something I, that I learned, um, and to kind of embrace and just, uh, you know, had to water the different areas of the friendships with the poor metaphor, but yeah. No, I, I, love I that totally metaphor. get that. The water, <laughs> you do, you have to like, you have to nurture friendships, yeah. and but they don't have to be the same thing. And that injury point, I think is really pertinent of like, 
all of a sudden you realize that your friends were just running friends or were just mm-hmm. cycling friends and they maybe they're not your yeah. friend friends outside of that mm-hmm. context. And so trying to develop and, and nurture those relationships is also just, I think, critically important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it can be really nice to have your friends be your running friends because when, when you're busy and you have a full-time job or whatever it is, it's like, you don't have that much free time. And so seeing your good friend and going and doing something you both love, and that might be running is really nice. And it's like easy to prioritize that. Um, but yeah, if, if that's like the only way you see your friends, then you might be kind of in a hard spot when you do counter an injury or something that kind of disrupts that balance. And all of a sudden you might find yourself without real friends. And those were just running friends. And, and that's a tricky one, I think. Yeah. So did we answer questions? I don't know. I think oh, we just I, made it harder for them. I think we made it harder. Um, but I will say too, like if any of these, if any of these questions really resonate with you and if you are like, Oh, this really worked for me, slide into our DMS about this. Like mm-hmm. we'll, we'll provide follow-ups to some of these, um, questions that we struggled with, um, with everyone else. Um, so if, if you're like, this is how I made friends, I'm a friend pro, um, let us know because I think we all could use a little help in that regard. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. And I just feel like in terms of balancing running versus like other friendships, like maybe you have friends who you've met before running or outside of running. Like I had a couple of my dearest friends come here for my birthday and I was just upfront with them that I was going to have to train a little bit, but I did it during a time when I knew they were going to be doing something that they also really wanted to do. And then I just put that running in a box and like put it away and didn't talk about running, didn't think about running for the entire rest of the day that I hung out with them. And we did whatever the heck we wanted. Um, and so it's like, sometimes if you are in the heat of training, you might, you might need to dedicate a couple hours of the time when you would be with them to running, but then just make sure to be really present with them when you're not running, because, you know, we don't need to talk about running all the time and we don't need to be thinking about running all the time. And we can just take running and put it away while we're, while we're with our friends and really just nurture that friendship. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. The only other thing I was going to say, but this is another whole, you know, can of worms is the whole significant other piece, right? Cause it's like, you like to share that thing with your significant other, but it can't be that whole relationship. Mm-hmm. That was something that I've struggled with in the past of like, you know, training, you can't really take an off day. It's like, if you're training for this race, it's like, when's a good time to take a vacation you know, and then, but I'm still going to have to do, to do this. And I really want to, but like, you know, it's balancing, balancing that with significant others and not having it completely always revolve around, revolve around training. Like sometimes it does other times, you know, has to take a backseat. I was reflecting on that today, actually, because Steven joined me on our little Friday shakeout. Um, and he hasn't met my new little cohort of, hopeful, hopeful running friends, right? It's like these relationships are really new. And it's like, I'm meeting a bunch of people right now and they're going to be connections that are like instantaneous. And they're going to be connections where it's like that person I see at groups, but might not be my like friend, friend. Um, and so Steven came today and I was thinking about how, when I lived in Bellingham, Steven and my running friends, like did not overlap at all. Like they were not like Steven. I mean, Steven was still like kind of finishing up his professional cycling career at the time. So he didn't run a whole lot to begin with. But it's like, they were not his friends really at all. Like he knew them, like he knew that they made me happy, um, but they were not his friends. And then in San Francisco, like my running friends were Steven's friends and were also like periodically Steven's running friends. Um, And that was just like, that's very like, they're two totally different situations. And I was thinking about that here, like, oh, will some of these people be our friends? And will some of these people be Steven's friends or Steven's running friends too, just because we've lived both those very different experiences. 
Um, and I'm just curious to see how it will all unfold because we don't know yet. Mm. Mysteries. <laughs> we'll we'll follow we'll follow back up in like six months and I'll let you know if Stephen's <laughs> making friends or not. Ask Corinne everything about Stephen and your relationship. Okay. And our running friends. <laughs> um, okay. Let's dive into it's kind of rest day motivation training esque question. Mm-hmm. And we, so we got a number of questions that kind of all fell into the same category. And it started off with one that said, How did you learn to love resting? This, in, this includes, you know, how often should I rest? Um, what about tapering? Like, do you enjoy tapering? And then that kind of also then turned into like, how do you, like, what do you prioritize on rest days as far as like, what's most important to get that recovery in? So I think we should start with like our relationship with rest and how we've gotten to the point where like, I think we're all fairly comfortable with rest days now. I know none of us were a number of years ago. So, um, how, how have you all changed your relationship with resting? I used to hate it. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm aware. You always say that about me, Corinne, but I've changed. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I used to hate it. I used to get so anxious, like for, I used to like not look forward to tapering. Um, but I think being injured and like, that's definitely, it's definitely changed um, my view of it, of like thinking about it as rebuilding. I always use an analogy, um, about a sponge it's like you have to wring the sponge out in order to like absorb more water and like the water is the training right so if you just keep on trying to absorb more and more water it's it's not going to work um and then the sponge is going to get moldy and then it's gross so um you know that's how I think about it so you know I obviously have the help of um our coach Adam um and yeah so he helps me you know plan out the rest days but just like being very um just very deliberate with it and um you know like I I fully embrace the rest days like I I absolutely love them and like the 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 taper time now the first couple of days I'm still a little bit cranky but then I definitely embrace it and it's better <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah <clears throat> I mean I think for the beginning of my career I was in the same boat as you Hillary it was like if I was given a rest day I most likely wouldn't take it. And if I was coaching myself, I did not give myself any rest days. (laughs) I would say things like, oh, I just did an easy 12 miles. Like that's not a rest day. (laughs) No, that's like a big day for me. It's just absolutely absurd. Um, But I I think it just comes with time and like you're seeing other people take rest days and maybe you accidentally take one rest day and then maybe you feel amazing the next day. And then slowly you start listening to people that you're working with and you're seeing that, oh, maybe I'm not feeling as fatigued anymore and I'm not getting as injured and I'm taking this rest day that I never used to take before. Um, and just seeing how it makes you feel is pretty profound because I feel like as soon as you actually start prioritizing rest, whether it's a full rest day or just resting in between your training sessions, um, you can start running at a totally different level. And so you, you realize that all that time where you were just training to no avail, where you gave yourself no rest, you were just at this plateau that was so far below your potential, but you had no realization that you actually could go farther than that. And so, yeah, I think it just, it takes time, but yeah, you have to realize that you need the rest in order to make all of the adaptations of training. And so if you want to actually improve, you do need to prioritize rest and do your training. Um, yeah. Yeah. And whether that's a week, every week or every two weeks or every three weeks, like it completely depends on your training cycle and your balance with work and life stress, because, you know, if you have a full-time job and you have a lot of life stress, 
and you're trying to run a lot, you probably do need that weekly or every 10 day rest day. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I think initially, like I did get myself like, like my, I cheated initially and I said, okay, today for training, I am resting. That's the only way I could do it because I had this like anxiety mindset about it of like, well, I'm not trying hard enough. If I take a rest day or like, if I'm not training today, someone else is training today. And I got lucky, both lucky and I don't know, being overtrained is not lucky, but I got to witness older teammates of mine when I was doing biathlon, like take rest and like have a beer and like (laughs) build a deck for the day instead. And so like, and they were the best in the world, like their world, their world championship medalists. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like if, if these guys are doing this, like it's okay to rest, like I can chill out. And I've always needed a coach for that reason. I've always in, in college, my college coach didn't give us mandatory rest days. She gave us optional rest days. And so I would never take it because it was optional. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would feel myself get really tired and I would go to my roommate, Tyler, and I'd say, Tyler, I think I need a rest day. Will you tell me to take a rest day? And he'd be like, yeah, Corinne, take a rest day. And then I could, if, as long as I had like permission to take a rest day, I could do it. And so I've always needed a coach not to like pep me up, but to, to uh, tell me to chill out a little bit. And so I think that sometimes that's really helpful to have friends. Um, or someone in your corner to kind of help, help navigate or help give you permission, help tell you that that's an okay thing to do. Cause I think that's part of it, the anxiety mindset. And then recently I'm in a bit of a scarcity mindset where I'm like, my schedule is so out of whack because I'm traveling and like we're, we moved that I have this terrible scarcity mindset where I'm like, well, if I don't train today, like I'm going to train today because I don't know if I'm able to train later this week. And so then all of a sudden I'll have like a string of 14 days in a row of running, which is probably too much, definitely too much for me. Not probably too much, definitely too much for me. But because I have the scarcity mindset of not knowing when I'm going to have to take a rest day, be forced to take a rest day. I just don't rest. So I also need my coach to be like, Hey, chill out, take a rest day. If we have to take an extra rest day because of life, that's okay. So mm-hmm. it's not easy, but do what you need to do in order to to get it done, be it talking to someone else or listening to your body or a combination of both would be pretty ideal. Yeah. And I guess like to that, like on that note, what do you prioritize during your rest days? Cause I feel like a lot of people wanted to know that as well. Yeah. And I used to love Keely when you were working at Nike, I feel like when you were getting into your rest day groove, it was like, Oh, that's the day that I get massage or it's the day that I like, like I have, I have a different breakfast on this day or something. Like I felt like you made it special, which I really mm-hmm. enjoyed. Like, Oh, it's my rest day pancakes or whatever, whatever it is. Um, so I do think that like, make, make it a special day. Like, don't make mm-hmm. it. I mean, mine's like, Oh, it's my appointments day, which is not that special. Um, but I do think like I prioritize, I try to prioritize sleep every day, but I think it's like, you know, you got to make sure you're still fueling, even if you're not training. Um, I just try to stay off my feet. I'm like a busy human. So for me, it's like, I don't wear my watch all the time, but on my rest days, oftentimes I do so that I'm like, Oh, or, or like looking at the aura ring for like step count to be like, oh, okay. Yeah, no, I, I moved too much today. I'm like trying to prioritize my, like staying off my feet and being gentle to my body on those days so that I can be psyched and ready for the next day of training. Yeah. And another thing too, um, that I've kind of incorporated into just, just daily, daily life. Like, even if I am training is like, not necessarily just having one rest day, um, but incorporating rest into the days that I'm training, because I feel like that also helps me kind of think about it as, okay, it's not this thing that I get to do every you know week or like once a week or, you know, once every 10 days or whenever, whatever it is, it's, it's about, okay, 
like this is something that I need to get used to doing all the time. Um, and what is, what is that for me? It's a lot, it revolves around like sleep and, um, nutrition, like trying to prioritize those things, even on a daily basis, and then pay even more attention to it on those rest days too. Yeah. yeah. I um, find I'm actually way hungrier on rest days. I don't know about you guys, but I'm like normally <laughs> starving on rest days. Well, rest days fall after like, maybe I've had like two big days of training too, oftentimes. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I'm not necessarily the most hungry on those days. Cause you have all these things that are released that say like, don't eat body. Um, so then mm -hmm. it's like, it catches up with me mm -hmm. and I'm like, even if I'm like still in that caloric, that caloric hole. So I'm like, need <laughs> all the snacks now the furnace <laughs> is burning. Totally. Yeah. And I feel like Hillary, we talked about this with Gorge, but when it comes to tapering, I feel like I also used to hate tapering. I would still mm -hmm. run like 50 or 60 miles in the five days before a race and just tell myself like, Oh yeah, this is fine. But tapering is so important because you want to be the most rested and the most ready for the race that you possibly can. And that's making sure you're getting to the race recovered and rested. You want to have a glycogen store so that you're not depleted when you go into the race. So you don't want to be depleting all of your glycogen stores by running way too much like the days before the race. And so again, tapering, I think just came with time for me as well, because before I was just a mental head case before races. And now um, I actually got called out by JT the other day for being like, oh, you don't eat nearly as much as you should when you're tapering, but <laughs> I was working on it and I was letting him give me like second plates of food. Um, because I do think like, it is still a, a tricky time for me where you're used to just running so much and putting so much in de of demand on your body. And all of a sudden you're not. And so it is like this weird feeling because a taper can be like, you know, a week and a half, two weeks where you're just sitting there with all this energy that you've built up from all the fitness. Like that's when you catch up on life. That's when you like do a little house project. That's when you like, I don't know, you've got like a final exam or something like there's good ways to, to spend that, spend that energy. Okay. I think we should dive into <laughs> our next, our next question, which is, which is related. It's another training question. Yep. It's kind of a multi, a multi-parter. Um, yeah. Keely, you want to explain it to us? Or Hillary, sure. someone? Keely, you got uh, the first part. Then I'll sure, I'll do the first part. So the first part around training is asking us to talk through how we balance road versus trail running in our training. Um, and then how do we actually prepare for like really technical races and get better at like downhill technical running? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think it depends. I think more and more like a lot of trail runners, like there's a lot of crossover from road getting into trail and ultra distances. So I think a lot of people take that structure and they bring it into their training for trail running, which, you know, running is running. It's not that different. So, um, I mean, I incorporate, uh, road running, um, to work on leg speed. Right. Um, I think that's important. Um, and, but, you know, the majority of my training is on trails, right? It's based on where I live. Um, but a lot of athletes that I coach, they can only run on trails on the weekends. So the majority of their training is road. Um, but I think that that can actually be good if we're talking about translating to a technical race, because for technical races, the biggest thing that you can do, uh, um, I mean, a question we had was getting better at downhill running. How do you get better at downhill running? And it's a matter of leg speed, like quick little steps. So I think there can be some turnover and some crossover between those two two different, um, like between road, we're like, oh, well, if I'm training for a trail race. I should run on the trails all the time. Well, leg speed is still important and it, ha it can help you with various things, including technical trail running. Yeah. And also like run what you brung, right? Like <laughs> it's, it's not, not all of us have trails out of our back door. Mm -hmm. Not every day is going to be convenient to get to trails. Like you kind of have to, to run with what you got. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes like there's probably an extreme, like I need to be cautious where I now live that if I go to 
go to the trailheads every single day to run, like I'm probably going to be on slower terrain almost too much. And so like, I have to be intentional. Like I intentionally ran flatter this week, like sought out flatter trails because otherwise like I'm doing maybe more hiking than I want to be doing. Um, Mm. I'm a big fan of hiking and I've got races that will, that will need that, but it's kind of like having that balance, I think. Um, so be it. So, I I mean, I coach so many runners who like live in Texas and train for UTMB because that's what we do. Um, so I think, and and you can, you can sex, you can successfully run those races living in flatter areas, living without great access to trails. I do think you have to be more intentional about getting out on the trails, like getting in those long runs on the trails, maybe even getting like an intensity session out on the trails. Um, but it doesn't need to be every day. Like, I think you can really balance that there. And I came into trail running from a ski background. So I'm a person who really loves my 10 minute miles. I'm all about that, like low heart rate, kind of easy, easy running. Um, and then the ultras I did early in my career were all, were all faster ultras in my mind, Leadville, Western States, um, things that are very runnable and have necessitate leg speed in a lot of running. So I've actually spent a lot of time on like gravel tow paths, you know, pretty flat, but like softer surface stuff to try to build that efficiency and that leg speed. So I think that there's value akin to what Hilly said, there's value to that, that type of terrain as well, for sure. Yeah. I think the only thing I would add is that I think you can balance both really well. And I think there is one advantage to keeping roads into your um, rotation is that you can get better leg speed on not technical terrain, right? And you can really work on running economy. And so I think one thing that is really important for training for trail races is doing interval sessions or speed work. And, and, you know, not everyone is, is strong enough or has the ability to do speed workouts on the trails without, you know, injuring themselves or even having the the access to that during the week. And so having roads to be able to do that on is, is pretty important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so another part, another question that we got, and I think this is a really important one about training. Um, so how do you mentally not compare yourself to others? I mean, we all love Strava, but sometimes if you post your run to Strava and then you look and you see what other people are doing, you're like, what the heck? I was just feeling good about my run. And then either you got no little like quick with QOMs or like whatever. And then, or someone does something more, more than you, um, does that bother you? Uh, how do you not compare? Someone stole your local legend and you're like, that's (laughs) not fair. I don't live there anymore. I don't run TAM eight times a week now. Exactly. Or, you know, if you're leading up to a big race, Keely, right? Like there's a ton of people running Western States. Like, uh, you know, how do you not compare your, your training to their training? So Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of that comes down to trusting yourself and trusting your coach. Mm -hmm. And like, I, I just trust my coach wholeheartedly that he has my best interest and my best fitness in mind. So I I can't compare myself to others. And I think one thing that's really helped me is living in the Pacific Northwest. My GPS is always haywire. And so I'll get people, (laughs) I kid you not, will will tell me to my face that I'm slow. they'll be like, wow, I watch your training and like, you're pretty slow. So I was pretty shocked. Like when you ran that race and I'm just like, this There's is why no we GPS. can't compare ourselves to others because we don't know what the, what their watches are doing, where they're running, what kind of terrain it's like, how they're feeling that day. You know what I mean? Like, it's like somebody might go take some of your crowns, but that might've been a super hard workout for them. And they might be peaking for something, or you might be showing really slow mile paces, but your GPS could be wacky, or you could be running on the most technical terrain in the East coast that there is. 
and picking yourself through roots the whole time. And so I think it's just, you can't really compare yourself to others. You don't know where they are in their training cycle. You don't know where they are in relation to you and your training cycle. And so you have no clue where they are and and how they should be performing in relation to your times. We're also individuals and we have different needs, right? Like not everyone is high mileage. Not everyone is low mileage. Not everyone does a ton of intensity. Um, Some people need a lot of intensity. Like it's so different. And so I think it's like, it's real, like to me, that's the important part too, is like you copying someone else's training doesn't mean it's going to work for you. We've watched really good athletes destroy themselves trying Mm -hmm. to copy someone else. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's, yeah, that that's a huge, I don't know. And it's a huge factor in that. And then the other thing that I've been talking to a lot of athletes about is like, you can't compare yourself to your former self either. Right. Like you're a different athlete every season, every day, every year. Like you got to give yourself cut, like, I don't know, go with grace, like give yourself some, like, I don't know, pat yourself on the back, be kind to yourself a little bit. I think we, I don't know, we're all our own worst enemy and we can be pretty critical. So use, use applications with like Strava with caution. I think they can be really great tools to connect with your community, to monitor your own training, to, um, I don't know, have some fun chasing Strava segments. But I think that the other side of that is that comparison trap. So just be careful. Mm-hmm. You get to choose what you consume. That's the big thing here. You get to, con- you get to choose what you consume on any, on any platform. So yeah. choose wisely. <clears throat> and actually I kind of want to go down into this rabbit hole if you don't mind Hillary, just because. I feel like you can just touch on it, but yeah. Um, so the, the second part of this question was how do you balance multi-sport racing, which is like, how do you balance running and biking training? And I'm really mm-hmm. interested to hear Hillary talk through this because I've been going on like evening bike rides just as like a flush out of my legs. And I try to ride with my boyfriend who's training actually for Leadville. <laughs> I can't even hang for 20 minutes on his like easy ride. And it's just so different. And so I can't imagine like trying to train at the level you're training for both running and biking. So how do you, how have you found to balance that? And how do you and your coach work together to do that? Yeah. And so I think it differs with every, with every athlete. Um, obviously mine is, you know, biking and running, but I think there's many people who, who climb at a high level and they want to run at a high level. And you can, you think that those things are um, compatible, but sometimes they aren't right. Um, or skiing, right. We see, you know, we're just talking about Killian and like a big schemo season. There's a lot of the Europeans to have a schemo season and then a running season. And there's some overlap in there. Um, so for me and how this is actually something that I've discovered, you know, just the past, um, you know, three years really. Um, but it's breaking up my season and, um, and it's usually skewed more in the preseason, um, uh, before I have a, a big summer of racing, uh, running racing is I tend to skew a little bit more heavily on the bike in the winter. Um, and this is for me, it works because, um, usually running on ice and snow really aggravates my ankles and my old injuries. And so it's a safer way for me to stay injury free, um, to work on, you know, different energy systems and, and intervals call call me crazy, but I still really love the bike trainer. (laughs) Um, and I think it's a really good training tool. And so, um, you know, I'll, I'll balance it out, um, doing a bike workout and a run workout. And then once I get to my big bike season, you know, my bike race, um, 
I will be doing more bike heavy workouts, but then as soon as I get to my run season, I'm going to be doing more run workouts, swapping a long run for instead of a long ride, that kind of thing. Um, but honestly, if we're looking at kind of a numbers, cycling takes a lot of time, a lot more time. So if you really look at my training and you break it down, maybe roughly, you know, 40 to 50% of time is spent on the bike. And that will like skew a little bit differently as we kind of get more into just running in particular. Um, but this, this has been, you know, three or four years in the making, you know, I can't, I didn't just start at that. And at first when I, I didn't even really like riding my bike at first, but, um, somewhere along the way, I found out that I really liked it. <laughs> um, I've, yeah, I've always found, I'm sorry, I've always found that biking makes me feel better running, but running doesn't necessarily feel better on the bike. Like if I was racing on the bike, yeah. I find that doing a lot of run training doesn't make me, make me feel great on the bike versus mm-hmm. like, I can come off bike training and like feel really so fit. Mm-hmm. So right. been found too, like when he was in peak cross country mountain bike fitness, he was a horrible runner, like so yeah. slow. And then well, flip throughout the year a little bit. He'd have like a different season. That's exactly why it's important too, is like, I know that I'm I'm a runner. And so I need to keep on running because if I just, if I just cycle, I do, I feel the same way. Like it's a little bit different muscle groups and definitely the, the, your hip position is a little bit different. And so this is something that I've actually had to pay a lot of attention to. And I think it's helped me realize that I need to incorporate regular mobility and regular, um, you know, stretching and on all of these things, because like your hip position running versus cycling, it's different. And so if I just cycle and then I, go immediately to like run, like my hips can feel all weird. And then I can, and then it's actually a negative impact in my running. So it's taken me a little bit to figure that out. Um, but again, like I said, the, my multi-sport is running and, and cycling, but then, you know, some people are really big into climbing and, um, you know, there's different muscle imbalances. They're like runners have notoriously like meet glutes, but climbers don't, right. <laughs> it's learning how to use their legs and running makes climbers legs tired. So, you know, it's like figuring out all these little nuances, but Adam, um, and me, you know, we have this weird, these weird book clubs where I got this like training with a power meter. It's <laughs> a great about. book. That's a great it book. Is, I have it's a book. great, it's a great book, um, but like totally nerding out. And then we're just willing to try new things. We send each other articles um, back and forth. And then, you know, uh, kicking myself and, you know, because I'm just like, dang it, I shouldn't have shared that article with him because now it's in my training log and this is going to be really hard. <laughs> um, but yeah, like that's basically what, um, what, what I've kind of gone through, but again, I can't, I can't do it alone because, um, this is something that I've learned in real time in the past, you know, three or four years. Um, but like you said, Corinne, it's like, it's helped me so much to look forward to the run days and then look forward to the cycling days. Um, because I'm not a high mileage runner, um, especially after just all of my injuries. And this has been a cool way to kind of stay healthy, but then, um, you know, spend time outside. <laughs> yeah. And for other people, seasons are important, right? Like right. don't want to necessarily run year round. So there's, yep. there's ways to break that up, but I think we're gonna move on to our rapid fire questions. The first one's not quite so rapid, but then we'll get going. I'm just going to read them and then we'll, we'll just kind of, why don't we say, I read it. Keely, you give the first response, Hillary, or we can go back and forth between the two of you giving first responses and then I'll chime in. Um, but here we go. Rapid fire. The first one's kind of slow. What do you wish you knew before your first ultra? that you know now um that you're supposed to fuel during an ultra race 
I'll keep it short. <laughs> Perfect. Um, start cold. Don't wear pants on your first ultra in the desert. Uh, poop happens. <laughs> My response, poop happens. Sometimes you just got to go to the bathroom. Don't wait. Just go to the bathroom. As soon as you have good shelter, do it. It's not better to wait. Um, favorite race. Blessing States. Mount Olympus Marathon. Oh, nice. Um, I'm so far, I think Madeira Island Ultra, the one that I just Oh, damn it. There's so many. I, I, mm-hmm. Can I change my answer? There are favorite ones that we will not have had yet. And that's, I think, the hardest part. Oh, okay. yeah. Okay. Uh, spandex or split shorts, i.e. baggy versus spandex? Baggy. I'm going to just say for a race, I would say split shorts. I'm a spandex person because I need that inseam. You give me that five, six inch inseam. My legs don't chafe and I'm a happy, happy nugget. Split yeah, shorts I'm, are always I, too, too short for me. I meant, I meant to say spandex. <laughs> I said split shorts. <laughs> I was going to say, I've, I've seen both of you Literally wearing spandex all the time. Spandex all the time. <laughs> yeah, I only wear the baggy shorts. I started wearing spandex for track workouts. It makes you feel fast though. I <laughs> See, I, I wear split it. shorts for track workouts. <laughs> and I wear spandex for racing. <laughs> I just don't want to chafe. That's, that's all. That's what I'm here for. I like um, I love the pockets. How often do you run alone? All the time. Yeah. I'd say like 90% of the time. Yeah. I I'd say, I'd say that too. People <laughs> think we run socially all the time, but I, I don't, I hate doing workouts with other people too. So it's like, those, those are the days that I'm like, I have to be alone for, cause I'm a weirdo. Okay. Um, powerful female role model from growing up. Uh, mine was actually Kelly Mazzani. She was a professional WNBA player who came out of the same town that I'm from and she played at Penn state and then went to the WNBA. So she was my, my first role model. Oh, Janie day Lucor. She's now in the Colorado runners hall of fame. She's who got me into running. I'm going to go with, I'm kind of torn Mia Hamm and Michelle Kwan. I was a soccer playing figure skater growing up. So those are my girls. Um, I was convinced I was going to be a professional soccer player. <laughs> Did not happen. Okay. Favorite. It's probably because of the baggy shorts, Grin. You need to embrace the baggy shorts. Just kidding. <laughs> I know. Well, I wore capris for most of middle school because <laughs> I thought my knees were weird looking. Okay. That's for another day. Um, favorite slash most important prehab and or post run exercises. What's your little routine? Uh ankle mobility and like this thing called the couch stretch is that thing for the, like the hips um, that I was talking about in the riding and, and running section. Mm. Uh, mine are just all of the adductor like clamshell work that you can do. I just do them before every single run. I like that. I, uh, I'm now a sumo squatter where I just get down in that low yoga su- sumo squat and I like breathe through my pelvic floor health. It's really fun. It looks really great. Um, and then I'm, I need to do some, I need to, I procrastinate at trailheads. So I have to do some lunges or something before I actually go running. Okay. Uh, peanut butter, smooth or crunchy, 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 crunchy. <laughs> I, we, I knew we could agree on something. Okay. What about pre-running snack, favorite pre-running snack, or maybe that's breakfast if you're a morning runner. Breakfast. What's your favorite pre-morning breakfast? <laughs> oh, uh, it's usually like oats and banana and peanut butter. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I make the same breakfast every morning. It's like <laughs> yogurt, chia seeds, everything that Hillary eats, except for the oats, basically with peanut butter, <laughs> banana, <laughs> just substitute yogurt and protein powder and chia seeds. And we're the same. I'm a toast person. So it's gotta mm-hmm. be like an English muffin or a bagel or a piece of good bread with some butter and jam or something is my, 
my go-to. Um, favorite non-running book? I'm just oh, going to go. Oh, I'm going to no. go with what I've most enjoyed recently and it's going to throw you guys, but I'm going to say Dune. Okay. Sci-fi. It's very good though. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, man, I have a lot. I guess the, the most recent one I finished was that, that we've talked about before the T, um, Mm, testosterone a testosterone yeah I'm not much of like a fiction reader I'm more nonfiction, but I'm hooked and the third so it's a three-part series or like it's a trilogy and I've read the first two and the third one doesn't come out until September so now I'm like biding my time it's called the Scholomance series mm. it's young adult fiction by by um, Naomi Novik and it's kind of Harry Potter-esque um, and it just like an athlete recommended it to me and I am obsessed so hmm. it's super, I might super look good. into that I love having like one nonfiction and one fiction going at the same time yep. 100%. yeah 100% I need a new fiction though so I'll look into it okay so this is a two-parter do you run with headphones when you run and do you have a favorite earbud headphone that will stay in place typically I don't um sometimes if I need help like on a road, um, I'll, I'll put one in, but I found really good, really good success for, with the J, uh, J bird earbuds that they, they have different sizes too, for your ears. Yeah. I typically don't use headphones. Um, but I guess if I do, I just use my, my AirPods and, and pray for the best. Yeah. <laughs> I I'm a podcast listener when I run, cause I'm an Uber nerd. Um, and I'm also a J bird fan, but J bird went under, I'm pretty sure. Um, which is really, really devastating because mm-hmm. they're the ones that I feel like fit in my ears really well, but I only wear one because if I wear two, I can't hear anything and that freaks me out. So mm-hmm. I'm going to look at like the, whatever, like the bone conduction ones are, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've because... also been using aftershocks that are good, that aren't bone yeah. conducting in there. Oh, they cool. sit right, right on top of the ear, but you can hear as well. I like it. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Those were our rapid fire questions. We're going to do a little society slam and then we'll let you all go for today. Let us know if you like this format, if it's worth us doing it again, we have a ton of questions in the bank and we love more of them. So, um, let us know, but society slam is brought to you by aura ring. Um, if you have not yet checked them out, we encourage you to do so. We all love ours. Um, I'm speaking for everyone here, of course, obviously, but I think we do. I think we're in agreement there. So society slam Keely, what do you have? Um, I have one really quick thing to say about the aura ring is my charger broke for two <gasps> weeks and I was lost. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, no. I was so sad. <laughs> I, my, my menstrual cycle was like two days late and I couldn't tell if it was like on track to come, you know, I didn't have any data and I was freaking out. Um, but I got a charger from Dylan. He sent me one and we're all good. It's on my ring, my finger now and it's working, but I was stressed. So yes, I would have an R ring, even if they weren't our sponsor. That was one of the questions we got. And I love my, my ring. Um, but one thing I wanted to just say is I had a really lovely, thoughtful, um, message come through from one of our listeners, just, um, giving us a little bit of knowledge around, um, what we talked about last episode, which was women who have their periods. And it was really just a, it was really eye-opening for me because she was, she sent through like five or six articles that I'll link to a couple here in the show notes, just talking about how we could actually word that in a more inclusive way. And so first off, I wanted to just apologize to the group that listened to last week is if we offended anybody for calling out 
um, women who menstruate instead of people who menstruate. Um, we just want to say sorry. Um, but basically we just want to make sure that we talk about it in a more holistic way going forward. And this woman just kind of highlighted that we want to make sure that people who don't identify as women can still menstruate. And we hope that the trans and non-binary feel that their bodies are not wrong and that they also, there's going to be menstruating in multiple types of bodies. And so just kind of want to call that out. And I'll link to some of the articles that are really interesting. And I'm really happy to have learned a lot about that because I was unaware. Yeah. We got a ton of, we got a ton of opposite flack for my menstruation article with I run far. We used gender inclusive language by saying like people who menstruate and we got such like vitriol from random internet trolls on Twitter and on Facebook um, about that, about like, you mean women? And we're like, no, because other people can menstruate. Yep. Like people identify in many different ways and many different bodies can menstruate. So it's people who menstruate. So that was great that a listener yeah. wrote in about that. It, give, it give, makes me feel better about the vitriol we got for being inclusive. Yeah, in well, I mean, form. White House has gotten pushed back. So it's not just you. <laughs> That's good. Well, JK yeah. Rowling, she's got some other issues. I know, but I, I, will, I will link to a couple of those articles. Cool. Hillary, what do you got? Uh, yeah. So I think this is like, we got a lot of questions. Um, at least I did on my, on my, my channel. I'm sure you, you both did too. Um, about talking about, um, the, like the aging athlete and what that means for recovery men versus women, but also, um, like when people who are older and, and running ultras, what that means, um, for them. Right. And, when, when does this kind of like endurance, right. That we always talk about, um, why do we see, you know, women who are 38 and, you know, masters athletes, still still crushing it in ultras and all this other stuff. So, um, specifically I wanted to shout out to, um, someone who messaged me and she says she's a 52 year old female who's diagnosed with osteoporosis in her lower back. And she's been a runner since she was 16. Um, and so she would, would just wants to, um, for us to touch on like topics like this. Um, and I think it could be a really, um, a really interesting topic for the future. Yeah. And we're going to cover menopause. And so I think that'll be kind right. of our first version of digging into that a little bit, perimenopause and yeah. menopause, but you're right. The aging athlete is super fascinating, gen mm -hmm. like regardless of gender. So definitely mm -hmm. stuff for us to touch on mm -hmm. forward. And then mine's a follow-up, the sports bra follow-up. And basically as soon as I got that question and we put it out to all y'all, well, one, you did a great job. I got a bunch of different advice into my inbox, um, for various, um, there are a lot of boobs, exclamation marks in my DM. <laughs> And then a lot of really like interesting, like variety of size and shape, boob, like bra, sports bra advice for different boobs. Um, but at the same time, I run far, put out this super, super, super comprehensive sports bra review. I think they used like 60 reviewers or something. One of my recommendations would be for anyone who's really interested in this too, to flood the comments there because it's a good way to continue a dialogue about this with everyone together. And so if you're sports bra curious, if you're having a hard time with chafing or breast density affecting support, like following up there might be a good way to continue this dialogue on a different platform. So that'd be one, one bit of advice. And then what I got from, I got a bunch of like, you know, kind of mid, mid, mid-sized busted women. I'm going to say B cup. It's kind of where I fall for the most part too, is the Lululemon energy bra, and the Sunita Sarah bra was pretty good for there. Limited, like no chafing and good support for the C and D cup ladies. I got a recommendation for the run and run and rabbits utility bra or utility bra. Um, it's got a higher neckline. 
They found that really supportive. And then for the D plus crowd, I got several people that wrote in about the shock absorber bras, um, which are designed for larger, larger breasted, um, individuals, um, and provides a lot of support. So all pretty interesting things. We do know that, you know, breast size and shape and breast density affects how they move, um, which is a weird thing to think about and a weird thing that I just called them they, but you know, that's kind of what we've got thus far. Um, thank everyone. Thank you to everyone who followed up with me on that. And then, yeah, I'd, I'd send you over to the, the I run far, uh, best sports bras for running thing. Cause everyone's going to have differing opinions. And I'd be curious to know kind of how your opinions stack up. And I'd encourage you to share them there because that's really, really good, um, to continue that dialogue. And we're going to put that in the, um, in the show notes. I think that's it. Thank you for bearing with us in this new format. Um, <laughs> slide into our dms let us know if you liked it let us know if you hated it that'd be great too um subscribe like review all that stuff helps us out a lot um share it with your friends and until next time we'll see you on the trails